Tuesday, June 7th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Molly Full Funds, Bill Barker. Happy Tuesday. Thank you. Are you excited to talk about companies that are not even remotely household names? They're fine, fine companies from the great state of Indiana. <laughs> the Hoosier state. For anyone who has ever listened to this podcast and thought, ah, you know, you, you tend to, there's a universe of about 50 companies, maybe 100 companies. Those are the ones you tend to talk about the most. Well, strap in because we're not going to be talking about any of those. Uh, let's start with Thor Industries. Shares up 7% this morning and hitting an all time high after a very impressive third quarter. And I think, in a nutshell, if we're describing the business of Thor Industries, Recreational vehicles, yes, yeah, not just in a nutshell. That's it. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's that's what they do. That's actually not entirely. Uh, they also have an aluminum uh, company that they acquired last year. But basically, yes, they make RVs, both motorized and towables, and they are number one in motorized and number two nationally in towables to uh, Forest River, which is now owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So right here, we're back to one of your companies that you talked about. Hathaway. So the listeners who were panicked, I'm not going to hear anything familiar. We've covered it. We've we've checked that box. How much? Um, this is a company that has performed well. This is a stock that has performed well over the last five years or so, and even beyond that, depending on your holding period. But I'm curious for a company that is in the business of recreational vehicles. How much does the price of gasoline help or hurt Thor Industries at any given time? So, those in the industry will tell you uh, on the record that uh, the gas prices really don't matter. Uh, and then they say that on the record. They say that on with the record, a straight face. With a straight face. <laughs> uh, basically, they, they, they say uh, they don't really matter. Uh, and and off the record, they'll say yes, it, it does because one thing is that. They shouldn't matter all that much. Uh, people don't buy RVs and then drive them 12, 15,000 miles a year. They, they drive them a couple thousand, um, typically. And so, the, the difference in the, the price of ownership when gas moves around is a lot less than you think. But at time of purchase, it seems very important to the, the new uh, owner. And so, it, it does make a difference in the sales. I was going to say. I mean, we we just last week saw auto sales for the month of May, and across the board, we saw companies, Ford Motor being maybe the 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 best example of this, where the truck sales dwarfed the car sales in terms of year over year performance, and. If we're seeing that with with pickup trucks, it, it stands to reason that we would see that with RVs. Yeah, everything's going right in terms of macroeconomic factors that you could hope for for an RV manufacturer. You've got employment numbers, which up until the last month were very very strong, consistently, uh, and still improving uh, through last month's numbers as well. Gas prices uh, really helping, and also interest rates because most people are. Financing the RVs uh, just like they're financing cars. Uh, in fact, even more so because it's a more expensive purchase much of the time. So, uh, and consumer confidence is reasonably high. So, everything that you would want to have going right is going right. That's translating into 
very impressive sales in the industry, up about 10-11% for this year, uh, 9%, uh, almost 10% for Thor uh, this quarter. And actually, uh, earnings were much better than that. Earnings were up about 25%, and the backlog was up 40% for the quarter. So, looking forward, given the orders on backlog, things look very good for the next 12 months as well. So, the fact that this stock is hitting an all-time high today for someone who's maybe just learning about Thor Industries, you don't think that this is an overvalued stock? We've owned it in Great America, from uh, which is the, one of the funds and um, that, that uh, Motley Fool Asset Management has. So we've owned this from day one and it, have followed it for longer than that. And it typically does not look particularly overvalued. I think right now, even after today's seven percent move up, it's still trade, uh, trading at about thirteen times next year's earnings. So that is not while it while it is true that that can be. Uh, deceptive that when everything is great and you're at a market peak, which it's always possible that we are right now, and then uh, PE multiples uh, are not helpful uh, because they make it look like uh, things aren't that expensive and and things can turn around. This is a cyclical industry, of course. Talk about 2008, 2009. Uh, Thor was able to be profitable in 2009, which is remarkable given just how much. Uh, purchasing fell off for the entire industry, including Thor. Uh, but it's a very well-managed company, and, and they have never not had a profitable year. The biggest winner on the NASDAQ today is LDR Holding Corp., a medical device company. And the stock is up 63% on the news that the company is being bought by Zimmer Biomed Holdings. I'm going to say, in more than five years of doing this podcast, I think this is the first time we've talked about either of these companies. Let's really. I think so. Yeah. You don't talk about Zimmer Biomet. No, should we? What about before when it was just Zimmer and Biomet before they merged? I mean, when two you... great proud Warsaw. This is an amazing story. These companies, Zimmer and Biomet, both located in Warsaw, Indiana. Oh no, we have talked about this one. I probably brought it yes, up. Yes, yes, yeah. because the fact that they were both located in not a particularly big town in Indiana, I was like, wait a minute. You know, how, they do the same thing, and they're in the same town. Yes. And why? Why aren't they already merged? And uh, I guess they felt the same way at a certain point in time. So they're buying this medical device company. The premium they're paying is sixty-four percent. The stock is up sixty-three, maybe sixty-three and a half percent. So unlike some acquisitions that we have seen recently in other industries, where the stock only moves up a little bit relative to what the buyout price is, this indicates that. Absolutely, everyone thinks this deal is going through. There's not going to be any problems in terms of regulatory issues, anything like that. Well, let's not say absolutely everyone, because the lawyers are already filing their claims that this is going to be something they are investigating. Which the plaintiffs bar for uh, you know now all mergers are immediately met that morning with a if not a suit an announcement by. Plaintiffs bar that this needs what is to plaintiffs be, bar? That they would represent the plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit against the company for failing to maximize shareholder returns. So imagine that just as every time there is a drop in a stock price of thirty percent in a day, there are class action suits. The the class action is brought 
you know, on behalf of, of the plaintiffs, the ones who, the shareholders who are seeking to get some money from the company. So the plaintiff's bar is that part of the bar that represents all the plaintiffs. And the defendants are, you know, the company. So just to review, some company that I and probably a lot of other people have never heard of is being bought out at a premium of 64%. Yes. And there are some lawyers who are you know, doing the Lord's work and, and ready to jump in and say, eh, it just ain't enough. Yeah, you may ask yourself why people don't like lawyers more. <laughs> um, is- Back in my days as a trial lawyer, I had one, one case where I was on the defense side of a, of a class action lawsuit. So I, I got to know the plaintiff's bar of, uh, you know, the representatives of the shareholders a little bit. Some nice folk? Of course. <laughs> um, so let's go back to Zimmer Biomed for a second, because is, I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a premium. I'm assuming, as we've seen with other companies in other industries, when there's a, a significant premium being offered, they're going in thinking, look, we want this. Maybe we're going to pay a little bit more than we need to, but we want to get this deal done. Zimmer Bio, you look at Zimmer Biomet. When you saw news of this deal, did you think, ah, that's a little pricey to pay? Or did you think, no, this makes sense for them. This is a good acquisition. If they had to pay up for it a little bit, I'm fine with that. So, it, this is the problem with looking at uh, the one day stock price move. Uh, LDR, so LDR, to, Go into exactly what they do is their their specialty is is spine, um, cervical discs and spinal implants, and Zimmer Biomed is mostly hips and knees. So this is they have some exposure to spinal, some exposure to dental, but they this is a kind of a hole for them, and LDR fills it very nicely. Now LDR has moved up sixty three percent today from about twenty two dollars to thirty seven dollars, but. This year, it's traded between 16 and 47. So you don't have to go back that far to find the market feeling that LDR was worth more than $37. You just got to go back to, I don't know, it's within the last 12 months. Um, and, and, and so, therefore, that's one sort of post that the you know, class action suit could, could uh, focus on. But also, I, I'm looking at some of the. Um, Analyst estimates and then the buys. LDR was uh, was a buy recommendation by a lot of analysts, including uh, some that I follow. And they had price targets of thirty three, thirty four dollars a share when the company was trading at twenty four. So the analysts and take you know price targets with a grain of salt at all times. But this was not a price that was out of line with what other people following the company thought that it was worth. How should we feel about Zimmer Biomet, assuming this goes through, assuming the, the plaintiff's bar, your friends in the legal community, don't have their way, and this deal actually does go through? I, I think it's it's a good acquisition. Zimmer has, this is a disclosure, another holding uh, in, in the funds, uh, and one we followed for a long time. They've grown recently with the acquisition merger, I guess, with Biomet, uh, more or less a merger of equals. And this is a one billion dollar acquisition, which is significant. But uh, Zimmer is is significantly larger and, and is now over a twenty billion dollar company. It certainly was nowhere near that when we were first buying it six seven years ago. 
so they've done a good job, seemingly so far, of the merger with Biomet. A couple hiccups uh, along the way, but that, that seems to have been mostly a, a smooth uh, merger, and um, they've got experience. I think it's it nowadays with the changes brought on by Obamacare in the medical industry, you need a bigger presence to deal with the insurance companies to get all of your products uh, being approved and supplied uh, both to the hospitals and and covered by insurance. So they are going to be able, uh, with their sales force, to help uh, LDR, which was already the fastest growing uh, uh, sort of sole spinal company out there. Uh, they're going to be able to grow faster. So I think it's a good it's a good merger. Whether it's the right price, you know, I'd have to spend a little bit more time looking at it, but it certainly makes a lot of sense. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from Mithu Raman in Cardiff, South Wales. I'm a longtime Foolish listener, and I started properly following the podcast about two years ago and love the effort that goes in, even when you start going off on very strange tangents. Thank you. Appreciate that, because Long-time listeners know that happens. Uh, I'm just getting my seven-year-old daughter into the world of investing and the concept of buying companies, not products, and would love to visit along at Fool HQ at some point. The door's always open. Drop us a note, marketfoolery.fool.com. If you're ever in the D.C. area, we'd love to have you stop by. And he concludes by writing, P.S. ACDC performed in London last week, and Axel Rose was on the vocals. The general response was that he was very proficient and everyone had a blast. Please tell Dan Boyd. I'll definitely pass this along to Dan Boyd. Dan is is not behind the glass today because he is on his way to Paris for a wedding. But there you go, vindicating uh, the the buy seller hold that you put out there of of uh, Axel Rose fronting ACDC. Possibly even vindicating our bizarre tangents uh, <laughs> because that was one of them. It was. It absolutely was. Love Wales, by the way. Many of our tangents are about travel. Have you been to Wales? I've been to Wales. What, yeah. what does one do? In, I've never been to Wales. One goes to castles. Okay. Yeah, we don't really have that here in the one States. One goes to castles and, and reads the, the road signs, which are in Welsh, and, and just sort of giggles. Because <laughs> it, when all you know is English, the, the Welsh language is challenging. Yeah, I would think so. To, to process. Uh, is there Much a, like Gaelic. Did you grow up like speaking any Gaelic around the house? Uh, no, not really. Got any phrases? Um, uh, Slancha. That's yeah. the, you know the, the the basic toast there, um, but you've got you've got some um, good sort of Gaelic names that you've named your children. Yes, yes. So well, you Maeve, got that Maeve. Maeve yeah, nothing f- more Gaelic than that, yeah, right? Named for the first queen of Ireland, the, the warrior queen, and that has uh, come to fruition at various points in her childhood, uh, or it certainly has manifested itself from time to time. Uh, is there a particular cuisine in Wales? I realize I should be asking our rarebit. Yes, rarebit. Welsh rarebit. Is that rabbit? No, it's rarebit. Okay, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, you've never heard of Welsh rarebit? Ah, uh, not not really. Is there anything else? Is there anything else I you did, can do? No, for you've stumped me. I mean, that I was happy to have one thing there. Uh, it's a dish made with uh, savory sauce and melted cheese and various other ingredients, and served hot after being poured over slices of toasted bread. Melted cheese and toasted bread—two things. I'm. I'm we very could much... have just called it that, but no. In, in when you're in Wales, you call that rare bit. Before we wrap up, can we talk a little bit about Muhammad Ali? Sure. Um, what would you like to talk about? Um, I, I don't know. I feel like we should we should 
I don't know, share just a little bit. I mean, that was the dominant news story over the weekend. And um, share our personal anecdotes about uh, Muhammad Ali. Not that we're. I I know neither of us really had a, a personal encounter with Muhammad Ali. Um, I I spent a a good bit of the last few days reading a lot of what's been written about him and his life, um, and anyone interested can just. I mean, there's there's a wealth of stuff to be found online. Wesley Morris in the New York Times, uh, David Remnick in the New Yorker, uh, a, a host of people: uh, Sally Jenkins, uh, Dave Shine, and Tom Boswell in the in the Washington Post. Um, but one of the things that I read uh, was was actually my one experience with Muhammad Ali, which was more than 20 years ago. Uh, there was an event in D.C. where uh, I, I believe HBO had done a documentary film based on uh, books that Arthur Ashe had written about African American athletes. And one of the things I read about Ali over the weekend was how um, he was he was the most famous person on the planet, and he was in any room he entered, he was the biggest star. And and people like Frank Sinatra who was himself an enormous star for much of his life, and certainly in the 1960s. And Sinatra was just, you know, astonished to meet Ali, as were the Beatles, anyone. And I I saw that play out at this reception I was at, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people there, and there were athletes and people, there were actors and actresses, there were politicians, all these famous people in their own right and I happened to be up in the balcony looking down at the main floor where all of these people were at this reception. And when Ali came in a side door, I could just see the ripple effect and all the attention turning. And it, it was that very thing where all of, you know many of these people are famous to varying degrees or the other. In some cases, they are powerful in the case of politicians and business leaders in this room as well. And they are all in awe of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I never had the pleasure of being in the same room with Ali. The closest uh, to a moment like that that I can think of was I was at a wedding and there was, a, I guess this was the night of the rehearsal dinner or something, and so there was an after uh, party at, at a bar, and so we were there with, with friends, and this was when the Atlanta Olympics was going on, and so the opening ceremonies and everybody was the TV was on in the background. Nobody was paying attention because the opening ceremonies don't translate to bar watching particularly particularly well. But then when Ali came out and uh, lit the torch, sort of the whole bar stopped talking and, and all watched. So yeah. it was a little bit of a moment like that. Let me uh, let me bring in a, a, a little bit of, of investing slash business angle to this. Um, and to borrow from David Gardner's parlance, um, Muhammad Ali very much a rule breaker. Very, in terms of his boxing style, that was another thing. Because I, you know, by the time by the time I was cognizant of boxing, uh, he was largely done with his career. Certainly, the glory days of, of Ali's career were behind him. Uh, but really, you, you're not that much younger than I am. <laughs> um, well, in terms of like when I was actually watching boxing, yeah. But you, that's the great thing. Now you can go on YouTube and you can find you can find his fights with you know people like Sonny Liston and that sort of thing. But that was one of the things that I read that his first fight with Sonny Liston, where he won the title for the first time, he won the, the heavyweight championship of the world. 
everyone was sort of thrown by his style because it was not the style of boxers, certainly of heavyweight boxers, to to back up. And so the the dancing that he did, the um, the speed with which he moved was was really unheard of at that point, certainly for for men of that size. Um, and it's it's interesting to me that in at least two of his most famous bouts, the the first fight with Sonny Liston, and then later when he's fighting George Foreman, the Rumble in the Jungle, he is prohibitively an underdog. And in both cases, you, you can't really find anyone who thinks Ali's going to win this fight. And he, because Sonny Liston was the heavyweight champ and he was enormous. Um, and that was, you know, in the mid 60s. What was that, 62, I think it was? Maybe 64. A little later, I think. And then the, the Olympic medal was 60. Right. So and then a few years That's after right. That. It was, yeah. So it was 64. And then in 74, 10 years later, he's, you know, he's 33, 34 years old. And George Foreman is the champ. And George Foreman is a terrifying <laughs> the George Foreman that you see now, the George Foreman of the George Foreman grill with the bald head and the big smile and the 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 pitch man that he is, an incredibly successful businessman, by the yeah. way. Sold the George Foreman grill for somewhere in the neighborhood of $140 million. Like George George has done very well in the world of business. But as a boxer, I mean it's like he had a, a complete personality transplant. He was so terrifying when he was 25, 26 years old, and he was heavyweight champ. And that, that as much as anything, is, I think, why anyone interested should watch the truly great documentary, When We Were Kings, which is about the rumble in the jungle. Because you see, you see a George Foreman who is almost unrecognizable from the George Foreman of today. Yeah, Foreman is one of the great image makeovers of all time, I think, in a positive way. There are a lot who we thought we knew and then turned out to be less positive images by the end. But uh, he really, not that he was a, a villain when he was a boxer, but he, he was not he was not the friendly guy. He was not the talkative guy. Right. Uh, and he, uh, he was fearsome. And a couple of great fights, not only the one with Ali, but, but with Frazier uh, for Foreman, I think, which is an even more popular fight to watch because uh, there was more action going on between uh, Frazier and Foreman. I was watching the other night, uh, uh, and Johnny Carson, uh, host of The Tonight Show, had Muhammad Ali on, and at one point in the conversation, they were talking about how, they were talking about a, a rematch with uh, with Joe Frazier, and he was saying, oh, well, he's going to fight George Foreman, and then after that, I'll fight Joe Frazier again. And of course, Foreman, Joe Frazier's the champ, George Foreman knocks him out, with the Howard Cosell, the very famous down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier, and then defends his title against Ken uh, Ken Norton, and then and 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 this is one of the things that comes up in the When We Were Kings documentary. Uh, for the fight, they have an ambulance on hand. Now, if there's a fight right now, there there are medical professionals on hand, and it's for both boxers. The ambulance was on hand for Muhammad Ali. Because they thought, well, there's a real chance that he's going to leave this fight, and you know, it was, nobody was worried about George Foreman because he was twenty, he was younger, he was bigger, 
and he was terrifying. Those were the days when you had uh, uh, Norton and Foreman and Ali and Frazier and Ernie Shavers yes. and Jimmy Young all in the heavyweight division. And hard to believe nowadays, but you could be, you might see five, six, eight, nine fights a year between those guys. Every every couple of weeks, uh, somebody would be fighting somebody on ABC. It was always on ABC, from what I remember. And uh, you didn't have to pay for it. And it was, uh, it was just the, the heavyweight champ had to defend his title a lot more often. He didn't get $30 million paydays back then. I don't know what uh, Ali got for the Rumble in the Jungle. But uh, that's another thing that comes up in the documentary is they, they it's basically that was Don King's first big boxing deal was he arranged for both fighters to get five million dollars and he the the government um, uh, where was it was Zaire Zaire yeah the, the the government of Zaire put up ten million dollars to host the fight. Wow, we just speaking of, of tangents, we just went way down. Sorry, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues. You can go to foolfunds.com and sign up for declarations. It's their free monthly newsletter. Just go to foolfunds.com. I don't know if they're writing about boxing, but I know they're writing about investing. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Forward. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Sun is going down four miles a mile. Sun is going down four miles a mile.